Hello to everybody listening today and welcome to another episode of Feminist Food Stories. As part of our Earth issue, I'm talking to Charlotte Cote about her new book, A Drum in One Hand, A Sockeye in the Other, Stories of Indigenous Food Sovereignty from the Northwest Coast, Health, Healing, and Ha'um, which means traditional food, and Nuchanoth, the language of the Nuchanoth Nation, peoples whose traditional territory is along the west coast of Vancouver Island. Charlotte, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. So in my language, I am sharing with everyone my traditional name, which is Lotis Maiolt. It connects to my whaling heritage and uh, means carrying thunder, which really connected to the thunderbird, which was the, the bird that was that showed us how to whale. Basically, we are and were whalers. We haven't whaled for a long time, but it's part of our cultural identity. I am from the nation of Tshishat, and it's a First Nation or an Indigenous community on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and it's one of the 14 nations that make up the larger nation of New Channels. And we, where Tshishat is situated, it's next to the city of Port Alberni on Vancouver Island to just give people some geographic area. But I don't live there. I live in Seattle. I teach at the University of Washington, where I've been since 2021. And so I am in the homelands, which I want to make sure and recognize of the Coast Salish peoples here. Thanks so much for being here, Charlotte. Charlotte and I were just chatting about this, but for everyone who doesn't know yet, while I was at home this summer, I found your book for sale on the ferry between Vancouver and Victoria, which felt like a very fitting location, given that the book centers around reconnecting to the land, including the sea. There was a very clear synergy with our upcoming Earth issue at Feminist Food Journal. So I'm super honored to be speaking with you today. It's an incredibly rich book, and there's so much that I want to talk about. Before we dive into the details, Charlotte, maybe you can give us an overview of what the book is about and what motivated you to write it. Thank you for that question. Yeah, as I say in the preface to my book, I grew up on Ha'um, on our Ha'um, our traditional or cultural foods, picking berries with my family since I was a, a young girl, and harvesting salmon and other seafoods. And so our Cultural foods were very important in my diet and in my family's diet. But throughout my lifetime, I've seen a rise in health issues within my community, my Tsushot community, as well as in other Indigenous communities. And mainly because what I saw was a shift away from eating our healthy and nutritious ha'um to eating more processed foods or fat and fast foods, which really correlates to eating more unhealthy foods. So the question that really sparked the research for this book was, what brought us down this unhealthy road? How did we get to where we are today? And this is really what I have tried to explore in this book and really motivated me to really think about how I was raised and what has happened in that time period in my lifetime with those, you know, growing up in, in a community that really focused on those foods and ha'um or cultural food being very, very important to our diets 
So what brought us down that road? So that really was the the question that drove the research and writing for this book. Great. So maybe we can start off with one of the, the more central themes of your book. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the ways in which colonization impacted Indigenous food practices and why food sovereignty is important for political and cultural sovereignty more broadly of Indigenous peoples. Hmm. Yeah. Well, colonization can be conceptualized as a history of dispossession and attempted acculturation which we really saw in the policies, colonial policies, and then U.S. and Canadian policies directed at, at Indigenous peoples, policies that undermined our political, social, economic, and spiritual systems, really the attempt to move us off our traditional homelands, moving us onto reserves in Canada, these segregated small pieces of land and reservations here in the United States, This really was an attempt to break our cultural and spiritual connections to those landscapes, to our ancestral territory. Over 50% of Indigenous peoples in both Canada and the United States live in urban centers. And a lot of this is because those lands, those small pieces of lands that we were forced onto, couldn't sustain us, couldn't sustain all, all of our community members loss of access to traditional harvesting sites. It's a, this is still is a major, major issue with Indigenous peoples that we've lost access to places where we gathered, where we harvested foods, medicines, access to waterways where we fished and whaled, losing access to traditional hunting areas as well. And in for many of the Northern Indigenous communities, um, the trapping areas as well. So those shifts, along with what was just happening generally within um, uh, the environment, environmental contamination because of the rise of industry, the rise of mining, fracking, forestry, fishing industries, all severely impacting Indigenous people's ability to, to be food sovereign, to be food secure. Also, with those changes and those shifts, we see a movement for many communities, and not again, and not just within Indigenous communities, but the larger mainstream societies to living more of a sedentary lifestyle. But because of the presence, the continual presence of settler colonialism, that is the the continual undermining and weakening of indigenous political, economic, spiritual, cultural systems that we see the rise of disease more prevalent in our communities, the rise of unhealthiness more prevalent in our communities, even though we're seeing that rise in the larger global populations. And I say a lot of this is because of the shifts we saw in the way food is produced starting in the 1940s when we start, started to see the industrialization and commodification of, of our global food systems along with the rise in processed foods. So our cultures are embedded within the landscapes and within those waterscapes we call home. So if we start seeing impacts on those lands, that's in direct correlation to the impacts we see on us as communities and us as individuals within those communities. We have this philosophy within our Tzishat culture of Hachatakma Tsawak. Hachatakma 
Zawak literally translates to everything is interconnected. It's a philosophy we uphold. It's a philosophy that we live by that if one area of our life is disrupted, it in turn affects every aspects of our life. So with the rise in the food sovereignty movement in the last 25 years, we've connected that movement towards revitalizing our food traditions with a movement towards self-determination, that it's all interconnected. If we are striving to be self-determining peoples, we need to make sure that we have access to those places within our territories where we can revitalize and strengthen those relationships to our ecosystems, to the plants, to the animals, to everything that provides us with food. Something we're always interested in, of course, at Feminist Food Journal are the links between gender, power, and food. Um, and in your book, you talk about how in the pre-contact and early contact periods in your Sushak community, berry picking and gathering roots were considered a women's economic activity, while men mainly harvested fish and seafood, as well as hunting elk and deer. You also point out, though, that many studies of Northwest Coast indigenous economies focused on the role of males as food providers and erased or diminished the importance of women's foraging, even if this was central to the dietary health of these communities. And I'm wondering what you think has been the implications of this erasure on the way that Indigenous women are maybe regarded as, as knowledge keepers when it comes to food practices. Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think because a lot of <clears throat> a lot of the writers, especially in the early period, were male. Many of the historians, anthropologists working, doing field work in our communities writing about us, extracting, in many ways, taking our knowledge, were male. And so there was this focus on male roles within, especially economic roles. You find, you know, you pick up any book or many books about Indigenous economic activity, they usually focus on the male jobs or, or the the work that men did within our communities where women's roles were very central to um, our Indigenous communities' welfare. Uh, women held important political, social, economic, uh, spiritual, uh, social roles. In, For example, in New Channel communities, women had very, very important roles as the person who oversaw the homes, oversaw the households, also oversaw a lot of food harvesting and production, especially with berry picking, even fishing within the waterways, within the within the river streams, and sometimes ocean the ocean as well. So there was this division of labor that was defined as males' work and women's work, but they were never seen as unequal. They were seen as very complementary. And so the role that women played and women as harvesters played in our community was very, very significant. So you do have men who have certain economic activities such as hunting and fishing, but the foods, the plants, the medicines, these the harvesting of these kinds of foods as well were significant to providing a nutritious diet and a balance in that diet. 
as I mentioned, historians focus more on the male economic roles. Up until very recently, we didn't see a very comprehensive analysis of not just women's roles, but the roles of people identified as two-spirit in our communities, non-binary gender roles that were accepted and were significant to the overall economic production within our, our societies. Again, none of, the, none of those roles were seen as unequal. They all complemented each other. And a lot of that history, I think, also connects to the larger history of just patriarchy within a global society. Men were seen as dominant producers of, of, of foods and held dominant positions politically. I mean, I, I shouldn't even say that in past tense. We're still seeing it in, our, in the larger global society today. And also up until recently, how would I put this? Lack of acknowledgement of the importance of two-spirit people and two-spirit roles within our societies. A lot of that came from historians, especially male historians, working in our communities, anthropologists doing fieldwork in our communities, where they brought their own ethnocentric understanding or misunderstanding of gender roles and framed a lot of their the writing that they did that came out of that work that they were doing within Indigenous communities within those views, their own viewpoints. And so what we're seeing today, especially in probably the last 30 years, I really push back against that. And also people within our communities going on and 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 going into higher education, getting degrees, getting PhDs, and being, being able to write our histories ourselves rather than having somebody write it for us. Thanks for bringing up the point, talking about two-spirited people, because I think that's that's very important. I'm also very interested in this point, like you mentioned, on getting PhDs and being able to write history. And we'll talk maybe a little bit later about what counts as knowledge. But one of the great anecdotes in your book talks about you fishing with your sister, Gail. And I just have to say, first of all, I love these anecdotes because I think the scenes you paint are very relatable to anybody with a sibling in terms of squabbling over remaining snacks in the water and how much time has gone by. But something I found interesting is that you mentioned you joined some of the first all-women fishing teams in your community. And I'm wondering, as, yeah, as Indigenous communities work to reclaim ancestral food practices, how are these sort of traditional divisions of labor changing? And what resistance or support is this change encountering? I, I do I include a lot of stories about fishing with my sister because I, they're, one of the reasons I did that was to center Indigenous women within that practice, within that activity. Because for most people, they would think of fishing and see it as a male-dominant role. As I mentioned, in the 1980s, my sister and I were one of the first all-female teams. There were women out fishing, but many of them fishing with their husbands or fishing with their male partners. My sister and I really wanted to show everyone that this was something that we could do as well, that we could be a part of this. I mean, we, we would get teased from, from the guys about that, but we, I, I think the teasing even made us more determined that we were going to become good fishers. And today, probably 40% of the people that are out fishing are women because 
we, you know, many women have single family households and they also have those very strong connections to the water the same way men do. And so it has become a very, very important activity for both men and women within our community today. It's so great to hear that. I actually, I love fishing. It's just my hesitance always stemmed from maybe breaking my dad's very expensive gear and fearing the repercussions <laughs> of that. So. Yeah, we, we, we did that. We did that the first yeah. time when we yeah. borrowed my uncle, my uncle George Watts' boat and my sister was just flying along. She got the hang of it and we had, we had that boat going and we were heading down to where we we're going to set our net and then all of a sudden the boat stopped. I went, oh my God, did we hit a log? What happened? We must've hit something. What happened? So we stop and it's black. It's pitch black out on the water. You can't see anything. And we didn't back then. Today we have headlights, these little headlights that we mm. wear on our forehead, but we didn't have those. We couldn't find our flashlight. And so finally my sister finds it and looks down. She says, it doesn't look like we've hit anything. I don't see a log. And so I put I took the the paddle that we had in there and and put it down on the side of the boat to see if there's something under the boat and it hit something hard I'm like what the heck we landed right up against the sandbar so our boat <laughs> went up into a sandbar Oh my gosh, that definitely sounds like something I can do. I'm like now driving my dad's boat at like one kilometer an hour. So I'm just so scared that I could hit something. As a kid, I would refuse to kill the fish and then I would cry. And that's also when I got banned from fishing trips. <laughs> he's like, okay, time to club it. And I'm like, no. <laughs> well, that's also something. And I'm glad you raised that, Isabella, because I'm working on an article for a book that's called When animals die. And it's looking at the different ways that different cultures perceive the death of animals. And so I'm writing about that. And I'm writing about that because a lot of people have misconceptions about why we wanted to revive our, our whaling practices. As I mentioned earlier, in when I introduced myself, I come from whaling identity, but we haven't whaled in over 80 years. And one of the reasons was because there was an unregulated commercial whaling industry here that started in the late 1800s into the mid 1900s that wiped out most of our whales, the whales that we hunted, the humpback whale and the gray whale. And so when those a moratorium was put on commercial whaling, those whale stocks were able to rebound to a point where they became very healthy. And so when that happened, the macaw, who are our relatives here in Western Washington, they have the same culture, language, and tradition of hunting whales, they announced that they were going to revive their whale hunts as a way to re-engage with that part of their cultural identity and also to bring back that nutritious food. And so we started seeing this opposition, this coalition of people from very strange places coming together to oppose the macaw whale hunt. So it really was difficult for us to think think through that why if there there's this community of people wanting to get back to a tradition that was very very important to their cultural identity to our cultural identity as new channels why was there so much opposition and I say in my book, you know, a lot of this was because of culinary imperialism, globally, the kinds of foods that are forced on people to eat. You see that in in stores and grocery stores, the foods that are on top shelves and the foods that are hidden. And we saw it in that coalition that formed against the macaw whale hunt and people really not realizing what 
the Macaw wanted to do and what the New Chonoth wanted to do because they saw it through their own ethnocentric lens of killing an animal. Where with us, it's not the killing of an animal. It's a relationship you have to those animals as well as to plants where you revere them and thank them and provide prayers and ceremonies to them for offering their physical selves to you. Many people outside of our um, cultures don't understand that. And so as a result of that, you see people who are opposed to the hunting of any kind or, or fishing or taking the lives of anything. But you have to really think about that. If it comes down to taking a life, some, some life to feed you, everything we do is based on that, on predation. Because regardless if you're taking the life of a whale or of a deer, or of a plant of, you know, of, and I say this to my students to try to get them to think about it. If you're taking a carrot and eating a carrot, you're taking that carrot's life. You know, there's a whole discussion around sentient beings and what can, what can sense, what can feel. Well, there's been a lot of research done on things that we wouldn't believe would feel or have a sense of belonging and the fact that trees and plants can understand who their relatives are and that they have feelings towards those relatives those re re plant relatives those tree relatives and more research needs to be done on that this is something i'm going to be looking at in my next book because so many people have misconceived ideas about those cultural relationships and spiritual relationships you have to things that give themselves to you as food. You walk into a store, you pick up something that's packaged. You know, nobody's looking at those pieces of chicken that are wrapped in plastic and styrofoam and thinking that is an animal that gave itself to you. And we really need to go back to that as a larger society. So we have more respect for the things that are giving themselves to us. I'm really glad you've raised this. I am interested in the ways calls to veganism can be sort of at odds with indigenous food ways and the ways that people have traditionally respected and revered beings from giving their lives up, exactly what you said. Some people, I won't say all, I mean, I know people who are vegan, I know people who are vegetarian, I have students in my classes who are both. And I say, that's your personal choice. And if that's your personal choice, that's fine. Make that choice, whatever mm -hmm. reason. But don't impose your culinary attitudes and your ethnocentric beliefs on other people who have relationships to these, these mm -hmm. animals and to these plants. Because you're not looking at a larger picture. So for example, if you are trying to force veganism on the Alaska Native people or the, the, the Inuit people living in Northern Canada, you're going to dis disrupt a very, very strong ecosystem. What always perplexed me, especially when I was writing my first book, Spirits of Our Wailing Ancestors, on why people who say that they are the protectors of whales, why they couldn't understand how we are also protectors of whales and what the macaw were doing in revitalizing that whale hunt was important to that ecosystem. Because what we're seeing now is the continual rise of a population of whales here, especially the gray whale population on the Northwest coast, they're reaching their carrying capacity in their feeding grounds. 
-hmm. there are whales that are just beaching themselves. And even though there's a lot of different reasons why, I mean, the contamination, the degradation of our oceans and contamination of our waters is one, but also because they can't find enough food to eat. And it doesn't help that the foods that, that whales eat, krill, these small little creatures in the water, which they feed on, that we're now seeing big jars of those in Costco because everybody knows how healthy krill oil is. Well, you know, you're eating the foods that our animals eat, yet you don't want us to hunt those animals or harvest those animals because you have this this notion or this understanding, in, you know, your personal understanding that animals shouldn't be eaten. So, yeah, it, it raises a lot of questions around what I would say is culinary imperialism, people imposing their own food aesthetics on us without really understanding our mm -hmm. cultural and spiritual relationships we have to everything that provides itself to us as food. I think that is because in the dominant Eurocentric food ways, people can't imagine different relationships to their food. Like you said, we've all been getting, you know, chicken and styrofoam and plastic and it's really, it's really hard, especially for us on the West Coast, when we continually want to stay, keep that connection, that that special cultural connection to our salmon. Yet, because of what we're seeing, the devastation of our waterways with climate change, mm -hmm. the glow, the the warming of our waters, causing ocean acidification, you know, the, we start seeing these restrictions then imposed that. Rather than focusing on the damage being done and how to alleviate that damage, they say, well, eat less salmon. Well, how do you tell somebody who has eaten salmon all their lives that and have eaten salmon four or five times a week to now eat salmon two or three times a week, especially to elders who look at that as a healthy food source? But that's really what we're seeing rather than looking at the larger picture and saying, let's stop the fracking and the mining and, and the over harvesting of commercial and commercial fishing and start focusing on creating and helping develop and strengthen a healthier habitat for all of our animals, but specifically here in the Northwest Coast for salmon, because it'll benefit everyone, because we're not the only ones who uh, utilize salmon for food. We can maybe pick up on this discussion of whaling again, because it was a super powerful part of your book when you described the Macaw's fight to reclaim their right to hunt whale. And like you said, a coalition formed to fight their right to do that. And your book mentions that one of the central arguments of this coalition was that the hunt was not, quote unquote, traditional because it was done in motorized boats with high powered weapons and cell phones. And you rightly point out that this desire to freeze people in the past denies the rights to indigenous groups of cultural advancement and change that all societies are entitled to and have striven for. Um, and I was thinking about that the other day when I was targeted by an Instagram reel. And you can tell I'm an aging geriatric millennial because I see my reels on Instagram and then I find them on TikTok. But it showed me a video. Her name is, I don't know if it's Sheena or Shaina Nova. She's a young Inuk woman. Um, and in the video, she was discussing the health benefits of eating raw beluga. And they show her cutting it with the traditional knife. Um, and she describes what it tastes like when it's eaten plain or when it's seasoned with a bit of soy sauce. And it had 1.2 million views. I'm just proud of myself for even finding that on TikTok and also extremely impressed by the number. I feel often in food media, Indigenous food has been underrepresented. Of course, you know, there are a few exceptions to this. And Sean Sherman in his cookbook, The Sioux Chef, has, has been one quite notable one. 
but I was thinking, you know, before when this, like the, the controversy was taking place over the whale hunt, it was a bit of a different time in terms of social media and how much information was available to people and the way that people could represent their own stories directly to an audience. And I was just wondering about, yeah, your thoughts on what role you see for social media and in bringing Indigenous sovereignty issues to mainstream conversations, um, or also maybe even connecting Indigenous communities and transmitting cultural teachings. It's interesting that you mentioned this TikTok video because my editor that I work with on my writing projects, who was a former editor at UW Press, he sent me that video uh, a while ago and said, you need to do a video with your sister on fishing uh, out there in your in your fish boat and also in harvesting the fish and how to can the fish. And so when I was home this summer, I said to my sister, we've got to do a video. She said, I'm not doing a video unless I look good. <laughs> <laughs> so we we took a lot of photos which we're going to figure out i'm not on tiktok i don't know tiktok i'm on facebook that's the only social media i use i said okay we've got to get on there somebody can get a million views about cutting up whale meat we can get some views on, on salmon <laughs> and i have put together a short video one of my uncles my uncle rudy did a short video of me and my auntie smoking fish and so i have posted that a few times and i use it in all my classes because my students think it's great because you know i keep forgetting what my aunt's telling me and there's my aunt just cutting the fish i mean she's <laughs> such a good fish cutter that she it's she's like her knife slices through the fish like it's butter and there i am you know with these chunky pieces of fish coming <laughs> off my salmon and so <laughs> so I, I thought about the power in social media you know what we can do today to get our voices across um you know in 1994 when the macaw were announced they were going to revive their whale hunts we saw media being used very negatively from this coalition that developed it really made us aware how the media how the internet can be used how social media can be used so we've been really seeing attempts by our people within our communities to find ways where we can express the importance of these food you know our food production our food ways our food practices to a larger audience finally, there was one other link to gender that I was thinking about, and it came from a, a relatively minor detail in your book. Um, when you describe how in the mid-1800s, uh, the Canadian federal government took away most of the neutral nation's territory, and they replaced the large multifamily longhomes with nuclear family houses. Um, and it got me thinking about the impact that the shift must have had on collectivized care work and the links to gender through that, because of course, gender is so intimately tied to care. And this comes up a bit later in your book when you talk about the story of your friends, Nitanus and John, in their quest to live off-grid inside your bay. And they eventually tell you that they gave up because it's just, just too much labor for one family to do on their own. And I'm wondering what the impact was back in the 1800s of shifting away from this collectivized form of living to more individualistic models, say in the nuclear home. And how does returning to collective care work play a role in decolonization? I think their story is really powerful in centering that. And I wanted to, so the story, the conversation that that became that chapter with Nitanis, Desjardins, John uh, and John Rampanen and their family, which at the time when I was doing their, my interviewing with them, they had, there were six, they had six children, then while they were 
living in this area off the grid, which I write about, following their leaving that that place in Seacher Bay off Vancouver Island. She had another child, and then they've since brought three more children, John's brother's children, into their families. That made them aware of the importance of being connected to landscapes, the importance of being connected to these traditional foods or cultural foods or ha'om. And they wanted their children to experience that. They wanted to experience that as a family. So when in 2012, when they brought their family out to this area, where to live off the grid, I mean, they had a couple of rudimentary cabins set up there that their family would stay in, in in the summer months. But they chose to do that as a way to raise their children in a very, very different experience, that they would be raised off the land. And we're talking about a family of children from, I think the youngest was about four and the oldest was 12. Wow. And... <clears throat> I can't even imagine doing that with one child. Um, no <laughs> children, never mind. I can't even it's imagine little... taking my dog. So it was learning lessons for both of them, for Nitanis and John. Within that experience, both Nitanis and John realized that it took an entire community to do what they were attempting to do with their young family. And so it was one of the lessons learned, as I as I say in that in that chapter for them, that they came, and, and Nitana says this, we probably had romantic notions, you know, oh, we're going to live off the land and live the way of our ancestors, but never thought it through to how we used to live in the past in these multi- family homes in these large longhouses here on the West Coast, and how everybody within that family had responsibilities in keeping that family intact. Not just a nuclear family, but the larger multifamily that we saw along the Northwest Coast. They never really thought about that when they went out there with their children, the importance of their family, even though both of them come from very large families and families that are very closely connected. So, So that was one of the experiences where John says, because we were going with this colonized mindset, you know, so they were trying to live independently when for our people, you'd live collectively, you live communally, and everyone within that community helps and shares and and protects each other and so when they did have issues and problems they they didn't have that community base to help them and support them and so john really said we we weren't ready we just kind of fumbled around when we were out there we just weren't ready and the land knew we weren't ready and the way the land knew because they weren't engaging with the land the way our ancestors would. And that would have been through our language because neither of them spoke the language. John knew a few words and phrases, but neither of them were fluent. So when they finally decided to leave, John said, the lesson I learned is I need to learn our language. Language is important to connecting to our landscapes, to our homelands, because those lands, those waterways know us through that language that we share with them. And five years later, John became fluent. He is now a fluent speaker of our language, of his language, the Ahoset language, which is a new channel dialect. And I think that's so important, you know, in their story and understanding that story. 
Something I loved about the book in general was the way that it spotlighted the knowledge of people around you. You obviously cherish your friends and your family and your mentors, rather than relying on, say, solely the views of external nutrition or policy experts, historians. And you mentioned at the beginning that, of course, this is an academic book. And I think it's deliberate, obviously, that you've chosen to publish an academic book, but to rely on the voices that amplify lived experiences of people around you. And I think, you know, historically, the issue of who holds valid knowledge and who has the right to reproduce and produce knowledge has been very fraught. And this right to knowledge production has often been weaponized and used to disenfranchise Indigenous communities. So I think that's a very powerful choice on your part to center stories of people that you know around you who have lived that experience and know it in an embodied way. I was wondering, how does this this issue of knowledge production and who is allowed to produce and reproduce knowledge, how has this impacted food sovereignty for Indigenous communities? And how can one think about decolonizing knowledge around Mm -hmm. food? Well, as I as I mentioned in our in this book, for thousands of years before contact, or for since time immemorial, as we say in our communities, we held autonomy over our food systems, and we maintained food security through a rich knowledge of our environment, of our landscapes, of our waterways, of our food resources, and passed that knowledge through the generations, and so. The way that colonization and settler colonialism disrupted that was, for example, one major example that I use in my book is removing us from those from our cultural environment, which is one of the main policies that both the United States, Canada, as well as Australia and New Zealand everything that protected them, our culture, our, our their families, their parents, that guidance, and also to remove them from the knowledge. So many people who went to those schools came back to our communities and had that disconnect because that important cultural knowledge wasn't being passed down. And so as part of this food sovereignty movement we're seeing today, the right to eat your foods, the right to eat nutritious foods, but the right to also practice those those food ways and retain and, and uphold those food ways is central to that movement and central to re-engaging with that knowledge again, going back to our elders, going back to those knowledge holders and, and finding a way to continually transfer that knowledge down to our youth and to the next generation. So revitalizing our food ways is directly linked to the decolonization and cultural resurgence movements that we're seeing in our communities today. Those are all my questions today. So I just wanted to say Tleko. I hope I said that correctly. Yes, Tleko. Thank you. Tleko for being here, Charlotte. And thank you for taking the time. And for anyone who has not yet read Charlotte's book, I highly recommend that you do. And we will put a link in the show notes to where you can find it. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Oh, it's been wonderful. It's been a joy. And thank you for allowing me to share this space with you today and for all the people who listen to this podcast i really really hope it makes you think about your foods that you eat and the the food choices that you make and what that means to all of us as a as a larger global community 